All right. Um, so I, these are three poems that are not in the um, Alistair Fowler anthology, this anthology. Um, one of The first one is Hope, which is the one that I was trying to quote for you on Monday. Um, and that's one of the ones that um, sounds like Dickinson, as though Herbert had been reading Dickinson, which is um, always an interesting reversal. Um, did you guys get it? They're, they're together. They're okay, three sheets. The first one says hope on the top. The second one says O oh, for Obama because it's hope and O. Oh. And the third one says some, which is um, who's going to have health insurance. <laughs> Where else can you go? Some. Some will. Okay, uh, someone want to read Hope? Yay! I gave to Hope a watch of mine that he and Anchor gave to me. Then an old prayer book I did present, and he an optic sent. With that I have a vial full of tears, and he a few green ears. I loiterer, ill no more. I'll no more. I'll no more. The more I'll bring. I did expect a ring. So, um, he's exchanging gifts with Hope. Um, a little bit like, do you remember in Love 3, you must sit down, says love and taste my meat? That is love. Um, um, the question is who is going to be um, serving whom in Love 3? Um, who, who owes what to whom? Um, here you get um, what's clearly an allegorical, um, a series of allegories having in one way or another to do with the idea of hope. Um, much more deftly and delicately and um, um, lovelily handled than Southall does the Burning Babe. Um, but, okay, so why does he give Hope a watch? What would the watch stand for? Yeah. You wait when you hope you're waiting for something? Yeah. Something yeah, and it's as though what he's trying to do is say, yeah, what I've done for you, what I'm giving to you is the fact that I've waited so long. So I'm giving you my waiting. Um, but he, an anchor, gave to me. Anyone know why an anchor? Yeah. You stay in one place when you put the anchor down? Yeah, and an anchor is something that is um, hope in a storm. It's a very old symbol for hope. Um, if you know what, do people know what an anchorite means? What's an anchorite? Have you heard the word? Yeah. Anchorite? Um, do you know what, but do you know where? Yeah, a hermit or um, a kind of um, monk. Um, that is someone who is waiting for, um, waiting hopefully for God, waiting hopefully for the time of justice. So the so anchor, ite, I-T-E, A-N-C-H-O-R-I-T-E. Um, look it up in your Scrabble dictionary. Um, um, I don't know what an anchor maker would. Anchorite. I don't think so. An anchor smith. Um, I don't know, but an anchorite is a kind is a is a is a hermit or monk. Um, it's it's a, a holy person. Well, really, a holy man. 
Um, and the anchor is also in, in emblems, an anchor is always a symbol of hope. Um, in, you know how in, um, in Renaissance still lifes, there are various symbols of things. What's a mirror symbol of, do people know? Vanity. Vanity, yeah. So if there's a mirror in, if you, sometimes you'll see a still life with a mirror, and um, sometimes next to that mirror will be um, some rotting food. Um, and sometimes next to that, there will also be a skull. Um, and those are allegories. They're not, they're, these are not representational. Although there are people who would then decorate their own studies with these things um, to show that, that um, they were serious about, about these. Carlyle had a skull on his desk to always remind him. Well, that's what a memento mori is, um, a reminder of death. Um, so there are objects which remind you of things, a standard object in, icon, in what's called iconography, that is um, objects which you read as well as see. They're not only, um, oh, that's a nice picture, but they're, um, everything here is significant in one way or another. Um, an anchor is a standard um, icon for or image or emblem of hope. And it basically, it means something like stand fast. Um, even during a storm, stand fast. Um, this will be over. So what does it mean to get an anchor back? You give hope a watch, which means something like I've been waiting for a long time. But he, and notice the but there, but he, an anchor gave to me. Wait some more. Wait some more, yeah. Um, just don't worry, just, just wait. Then an old prayer book I did present. Um, that seems a fairly easy allegory, especially after watch, so we know it's been a long time. What would that mean? Faith. Faith, yeah. Um, even more than faith. What kind of book? A prayer. Prayer. God, you guys are fast. Man. Um, yeah, a prayer book. Um, so, and it's an old one, so he's been praying for a long time. Look, I've been praying for a long time, he says to Hope. Now, obviously, you could ask the question, who is Hope? Um, and in some sense, Hope is God, but in some sense, not. Um, that is, Hope is what he's doing, um, waiting for God. But Hope takes on a kind of personality of his own. This is something that happens in allegory, and it's something that we particularly saw happens um, with the idea of love, that love takes on um, its own kind of being, as in love three. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back. So here he gives hope first a watch, um, but hope says, here, stand fast. Then he gives hope a prayer book. He's been praying in hope, praying to hope, not quite, but it starts feeling like praying to hope, as though God is our hope. Um, the Lord is our hope. Um, our hope is in God, which means both, I mean, that's a standard thing to say, that our hope is in God or put your hope in God. But our hope is in God means both um, that we are hoping for something from God, but also that God is hope, that within God is this very thing, which is hope. So, but he and he, an optic sent. What's an optic? What's an optic? Telescope. So why does Hope send a telescope? It helps you see something still further in the distance. 
Yeah, it's still very far away, but just wait. Look, you can see it way, 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 way in the distance. Here, this telescope will help you wait. So it's like an anchor. Um, not like an anchor in that it saves you from the storm, um, but like an anchor in that it's an emblem of having to wait longer. The thing in the first um, exchange, um, it's you still have to ride out the storm, but you'll be able to do it. In the second exchange, it's you've been praying a long time, and you just have to wait longer, not ride out the storm now, but simply wait longer. With that, I have a vial full of tears. Um, that's partly what's called um, elegant variation. You don't want to, sometimes you want to repeat the same formulation. I, um, I gave to Hope a watch of mine, but he and Anchor gave to me. Then I gave to Hope an old prayer book, but he, um, but from him an optic I took, I don't know. Um, sometimes you want the repetition, but sometimes you want variation. Um, just to say, no matter what I did, and no matter how I put it, the same thing happened. Um, so with that, I have a vial full of tears. What would that mean? Doesn't want to wait. He doesn't want to wait, so he has a vial full of tears because he's been waiting so long. But it's also what he gives to Hope. Um, he, he gives Hope yet another gift. The gift is a vial full of tears. Remember the tear that... Um, Ahab drops into the Pacific um, in the anti-penultimate chapter of Moby Dick, the third to last. And um, Ishmael says that that tear was worth more than all the water in the Pacific Ocean. Um, if only he'd followed up on it, things would have been okay. Um, so a vial full of tears. They're very precious, those tears. Um, why are they precious? Why would a gift... What would make a vial full of tears precious enough that it would be a valuable gift? In other words, not what makes it a valuable gift, but the fact that it's a valuable gift means those tears are precious. Why? I'm sorry, I'm coming up all with the other Chuck Norris's tears. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they would drown the Pacific. Yeah. When Chuck Norris cries. Yeah. But he never cries. Yeah. That's clearly well, I guess he never cries. He... The speaker? The, the speaker, because like something is valuable when it's scarce. Okay. Um, where are the tears from, though? This thing, he, no, he doesn't say he cries them at all. He, has, he just has a vile hole. Yeah, but where did he get them from? His tear ducts? Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Um, yeah, the implication is, look, he gave, he's, he's, he gave a watch, which means that he's um, been waiting a long time. Um, he gave a prayer book, which means he's been praying a long time. Um, all these things are external emblems. We don't know that it's his watch. We don't know that it's his prayer book, except that he somehow seems entitled to give them. Um, if he's entitled to give them, then in some sense we have to assume they're his. If he then gives hope a vial full of tears, that has to be his vial full of tears, his tears. Um, and again, it's been a long time. He's been weeping a long time. He's been crying a long time. And now he gives Hope this very valuable thing. Um, valuable because it stands for what? Yeah. Repentance usually. Yeah. Repentance, um, a remorseful heart, um, a heart that's been softened um, by um, 
by prayer and repentance and patience, um, all elements of contrition um, for all the guilt that flesh is heir to. Um, so, yeah, I gave him a vial full of tears. I've been waiting a long time. I filled this vial with tears. I've been praying. I've, I've been hoping all this time. Remember what lies at the bottom of Pandora's box is hope. So all this hope with no result. Finally, with that, I have a vial full of tears. But he, a few green ears. What does that mean? Yeah, actually wheat. Mm -hmm. um, Herbert would call it corn, but... Um, it wasn't ripe, so he has to wait for it? So yeah, so it just, it's another emblem. It, it's um, um, vegetation of early spring, which also has an emblematic use. Um, when we read Lycidas, you'll see that um, the speaker in Lycidas, who we think is Milton, um, we start out thinking is Milton, um, says that he has to pluck the berries harsh and crude um, before they're ready, before they're ripe. Um, that bitter constraint and sad occasion dear um, forces him to pluck the berries harsh and crude um, instead of waiting till they ripen and they're ready to be plucked. Um, so it's this sense of um, whatever, he still has to wait. Whatever it is that he's waiting for is nowhere near ripening. Um, there's something, a few green ears, they're inedible. They're um, only a few of them anyhow. Um, there's, there's whatever it is that um, the speaker wants, he's just not getting it. He's just being put off. Um, when he will get this will not be now. Um, and then, ah, loiterer, I'll no more, no more I'll bring. I did expect a ring. So he brought a watch, he brought a prayer book, he brought a vial of tears, and what did he not get? I feel like this. A ring, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, um, sorry? Okay, I know you, no, I know you are. Sometimes, sometimes you get these, these really easy questions and they throw you. A friend of mine in graduate school was teaching a book for the first time. He was a TF. I know your TFs are, are much more well prepared than this, but um, he was teaching a book as a TF for the first time, and he hadn't finished reading it. Um, but he was a dazzling literary theorist um, who had just really intense and impossibly dense ideas of the sort that one has in graduate school about the meaning of literature. So um, he spent, it was, a, it was an hour and a half class, he spent the first hour and 10 minutes just doing this incredibly dazzling reading of the first 190 pages of this 200 page book that he hadn't quite finished. And then there were like five or 10 minutes left and then he looks at the class and says, and how does this book end? And they have no idea what he's asking. Like how is all of the, these theoretical constructs gonna, gonna come together? He says, no, really, how does this end? And they're just, the question is just too deep for them, and they're left speechless. And he's going crazy because he really wants to know how it ends. And he's hoping that as they try to interpret its ending, they'll, they'll also say what the ending is. Um, but he's just, his questions have been too aggressive so far, and, and too, no, 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 it doesn't mean that. Um, so he, he was in an unenviable situation, as they say. Um, 
So, and how does this poem end? Wait, wait. Yeah. How does it end? He expected a ring. He expected a ring. Oh, what a relief. <laughs> um, good. What would it mean to expect a ring? See, that's the question you thought I was asking, right? Well, what does it mean? Yeah. A ring is a sign of fidelity. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Eventually it has to pay off, but if it's not going to, then one of us has to give up. All right. Um, the church is the what of Christ. Yeah. So, um, and you know, nuns wear rings. Um, why? Yeah. Wait, really? Did you know? Um, I'm actually trying to remember if any of the nuns at my school wore rings. Like, it was never something that I... I knew the whole Bride of Christ thing. Yeah. But I didn't... I don't know now if they actually, if they actually wear their rings. Because they didn't used to wear their habits either. Yeah, so I... Yeah, I don't know what happens if... I mean, if, if they don't wear habits, whether they wear rings. But if you... If you next time you see a nun in a habit, um, I think she'll be wearing a ring. Um, it's, it, it may be optional, but it's a fairly standard thing to do. It's sacrilegious. Why? It implies that Jesus has a harem. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so... Honestly, I really feel like that's sacrilegious. Um, which is interesting because that's actually um, what the um, Sadducees were wondering. So there's a story about how Jesus has been questioned in the temple. And I think I told you guys this, that a woman has a husband who dies, and she remarries, and the second husband dies, and she remarries, and the third husband dies, and eventually there's seven. Yeah, no. <laughs> now that's sacrilegious. Um, seven husbands die, um, and they say to Jesus, who's supposed to be this, who's, a, who's this young man who's supposed to know more, have greater understanding of biblical law than anyone. That's, he's impressed everyone with the fact that he has this, this um, extraordinary, calm, um, but absolute understanding of biblical law. He's, he's sort of a, like a Zen master but of the Bible. Um, and so they say, well, here's, here's a conundrum. So um, if you believe in an afterlife, which we don't, they were mortalists. They did not believe that the soul survived the body. Um, as the Old Testament, there's no evidence, at least in the, in the, um, before the prophetic books. Um, there's no talk of the soul surviving the body in um, the Old Testament. Um, if you believe that the soul survives the body, as um, later versions of Judaism did, and as um, partly because, because they were connected with um, uh, versions of Greek philosophy and Greek religion, and also Egyptian um, philosophy and religion, if you believe the soul divide, um, survives the body, um, after death, who will this woman be married to? She is married to seven men. Um, are you saying that she's going to have seven husbands in the afterlife or what? Um, since Jesus was saying the soul does survive the body. Um, and so they thought that this was an unanswerable question. Um, but his answer was um, she'll be married to Christ. She'll be married to God, not to Christ, um, but to God, um, as will all people who are taken into paradise. So it's not a harem, um, but it's the idea, at least the standard theological interpretation of this, is that the church is, as a, is a single entity, which is the bride of Christ. And all members of the church are members the way arms and legs are members. That is, um, 
when you talk about um, in an anatomical sense what a member is um, is a limb and so all members of the church belong to the single body which is the church which is the bride of Christ and Song of Songs is um, supposed is read allegorically Song of Songs which as you know is far and away the dirtiest book in the Bible um, is read allegorically as about the marriage of the church and God um, that is uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth that's the church talking about um, its relation to God. Unlikely that that's what Solomon thought it meant, um, but that's its um, New Testament interpretation. Um, Do male clergy wear rings, though? No, um, and I don't know that there's a coherent explanation. Um, it might be that, that sort of literal... Um, cultural stereotypes come into much, much too great conflict with, um, with figurative or or analogical. Um, I think that's a great question. I don't know. I don't think they do, and I don't know why they don't. Um, but of course, the Pope and the Archbishop wear wear rings, which you kiss. So maybe it, it never occurred to me that those rings might be rings of fidelity or of betrothal to um, Christ, but they might be. Um, I think it would just it would just feel too weird to them, um, but I I really don't know. Yes. I feel like saying that would be like arguing that because the church is the bride of Christ, then he's technically married to Peter. Yeah. Which I would love, but yeah. I just don't think that most people would make that argument. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's the church as a whole, and there's, there's um, but nuns. What nuns do is they give up a relation to the world, which priests don't. Um, in order to be fully faithful to God. But I don't think monks or I don't think anchorites wear rings either, but I could be wrong. But it's a good question for this poem because he expected a ring. That is, he wanted a ring he would put on. Um, and he would be doing that as a representative of the church um, in the collar, um, the collar that he wants to take off, the collar that he feels is choking and constraining him and that so fills him with collar that he wants to get rid of. Um, that is a sign of constraint, and it's the it's the priest collar, um, it's the it's a clerical collar. Um, so those those are signs of constraint in various ways, and there are all sorts of signs of constraint and fidelity. But the ring is the is the one that most clearly and obviously stands for marriage, um, and that's why nuns wear rings. Um, hmm. Do you, um, would your parents know? Do you think? Maybe my mother. Okay. Um, my dad's Jewish. Uh huh. But maybe my mother, because I know she went to boarding school in Jamaica, and they were much more like it was run by nuns, and the nuns there were much more strict. And they wore habits. Yes. Yeah. And um, the rules there were much more strict in general. Um, so she might know. Like I know that they, she had to memorize prayers in Latin. Yeah. And they still did mass in Latin, I think. When was this before Vatican II, or or were they just ignoring Vatican II? I'm, that I don't know. I'm assuming uh, after. Yeah. But I feel like if anyone would know, it would probably be her. Like maybe if I asked her, she might know. Okay, that would be cool if you would. Okay. All right. Um, so I'll loiter. I'll know more. No more. I'll bring. I did expect a ring. What is different? Yeah. Well, I also like all of the symbols beforehand are are things that say just wait a little longer, just wait a little longer. Wouldn't yeah. a ring also mean that? Well, it, if it's an engagement ring. Yeah. 
But if it's a marriage ring, no. Yeah. Um, and it would also be something valuable. That is, um, part of the point of a ring is that it's valuable in itself. Um, that's why people show you their rocks. Um, uh, it's not only a sign. It's a sign with inherent value, and, it's, and the inherent value is what makes it so great a sign. Um, so, but, uh, but if it's a marriage ring, it means they are married. Um, what's the turn in those last two lines? What's a little bit surprising about it? Loiter? Loiter, it's a great word. Um, that's the word that um, sounds most like Emily Dickinson. Um, what, if this were Latin? In what case would the word loiterer be in? Vocative. Vocative, yes. So why is that surprising? See, I ask a question like that, people answer it. <laughs> why is it surprising that it's in the vocative? Do we use this vocative? <laughs> That's a great answer, but no, we use vocative all the time. In Latin. You didn't use vocative in Latin? Et tu, Brute? <laughs> really? No, yeah. yeah. Well, you did if you ever said et tu, Brute. Brute is in the vocative. Yeah. Uh, well, the first six lines aren't addressed to hope. Right. It's talking about hope as a third Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that there's something that you could just keep as purely psychological here. Um, which is, and I think, I think that's probably the best way to read it, which is um, what co comes from a somewhat restrained description of his unhappiness bursts out. That sudden vocative is a kind of bursting out of passion, of feeling. Um, that is, it's um, describing how things are is no longer enough for him. And he just says to Hope, ah, loiterer, I'm not bringing you anything else. Um, but that psychological turn, in a sense, could be the, the theological point. That is, it's when you stop expecting that um, the gifts you bring will, um, you'll get a fair exchange for the gifts you bring. When you stop bartering with God, when suddenly there's something like, impatience and distress and even rebuke. Loiter is such a good word there because um, the rebuke is about such a mild thing. Not loitering like in a 7-Eleven um, parking lot, but loitering the way Whitman loiters. I loiter somewhere waiting for you. Um, that's the last line of um, Song for Myself. Um, it's basically um, taking in the world, um, being, not being efficient, not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but not because you're doing something evil, not because you're sinning, but simply because you are not hastening to um, what needs to be done. To the extent that it's a negative word, and it is when he says, ah, loiterer, he's rebuking hope. Um, to the extent that it's a negative word, um, 
it's because there's something else that should be happening instead of all this waiting. But to the extent that it's not a negative word, word, it's a really human word. It's something human beings sometimes do. Sometimes we work hard and sometimes we loiter. Sometimes we're in a hurry and sometimes we're not. And sometimes it's okay to loiter and sometimes um, it's not a good idea to be loitering. And there's, it just seems amazing to me I mean, this is a poem that's haunted me for, for a really long time. Um, I think it might be the first Herbert poem I ever read. Um, it was in a book, in a mystery novel, um, called Death in a Tenured Position. And um, it's about the first female professor tenured at Harvard who then gets murdered. Um, and it would, there, there was a series of, uh, these were Amanda Cross mysteries. And there were a series of mysteries um, in which this academic figures out what's happened. So this is death in a tenured position. And um, at one point, they find in her papers that she circled this poem. And I think that was the first time I read anything by Herbert was in this novel, that poem circled. And I didn't understand a word of it, really. Um, but I really liked it. And um, thinking about why I really liked it, um, I think it was first of all the word loiterer. Um, it's just such a great word. And what it does is after all this allegory, I gave to Hope a watch, but he gave me an anchor, a prayer book, but he sent me a telescope. You know, these are just weird, purely allegorical things to be trading back and forth. They're like rebuses. You know what a rebus is? Um, you probably do, you just don't know it's called a rebus. Do you know what it is? Um, yeah. It's like a children's book where half the words will be taken out and replaced with pictures of the word that it's meant to represent. Um, no, not with what they, it's meant to represent, with pictures that sound like what it's meant to represent. Mm -hmm. like so an if, eye for an eye. Yeah, an eye for an eye. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so if, if you want to say something like, um, um, Oh, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of a Rebus offhand. Um, I is a standard one, but um, you'll say it's something like I, and there'll be a picture of an I, and then a picture of a glove, and then a minus G, and then a picture of a um, female sheep. And what would that mean? Oh no, that's not what I was thinking. Oh, I'm sorry. It was. It was. Um, Looking through through the hole of a glove because that's the hole in the G. I see a I see a U, but I guess that's not. But the point is, if you don't to look at a rebus, rebus is generally pictorial pictorial representation that you need to know the language to understand. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of bizarre pictures that that don't seem to be in in any naturalistic relation to each other, right? I an, a, a human eye a glove, um, a female sheep, and minus L or minus oh, one. That was on the back of the Captain Crunch box. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was like countries. And like one of them was like Canada. And they had a picture of like a can. can. And then like something else. And, yeah, <laughs> like, okay. I it. A can, an ad, and, um, uh, and someone's saying, uh, <laughs> yeah, Canada. Uh, um, Okay, yeah. So the point is that there, it's just a, a, a kind of inorganic collection of things. And that's always the risk of allegory, as we saw when we were looking at um, the Edward Gorey um, allegory that, that, um, of, of uh, the bicycle of prudence over the abyss of um, 
um, whatever it was, carrying the urn of propriety. What was it the abyss said? Carrying the urn of reputation, yes. Um, you know, so what a bizarre thing to be seeing. Um, it's just a conjuries of inorganically related, unrelated things. So look, here's a pile of things. My, a watch, an anchor, a prayer book, a telescope, a vial full of tears, and some green ears of wheat. Um, and it's whatever it is, you don't think, yes, this somehow captures my feelings. Um, you don't think, oh, man, a watch and a telescope <sighs> just gets you in the heart. <laughs> um, that's always the problem with allegory. What someone like Spencer does is he manages to put those things together in a way that do get you. But what Herbert is doing here is it's as though he's suddenly turning away from this allegorical, formal, ceremonial um, exchange of things that only have allegorical meaning. I mean, we can understand the meaning, why these are allegories of what they're allegories of. Um, but they don't make any naturalistic sense. And suddenly the naturalism bursts through when he says, ah, loiterer. Um, and that's just a wonderful moment. And it's as though that's what is the lesson he's supposed to learn. Um, what happens in lots of these poems is that he learns a lesson. He learns a lesson from love. He learns a lesson from, from God. As I grew uh, more fierce and wild with every word, me thought I heard one calling child. And suddenly, just that, child. Not rope of sands, your, 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 your cage, your um, wasting on flybone age. Not all of that, flybone age. Not all of that, but just child. What a great word for God to call him. That's all he needed, was to be called child. Not priest, not person with a collar, not, um, um, not all the images that Herbert's imagination or Herbert's culture are so fecund with, but simply the simplest things. It's a breakthrough to simplicity. That's the hardest thing. And you get that over and over again in Herbert, that breakthrough to simplicity. Um, you must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Just that. Yeah. Wouldn't you not want to give up on hope? Um, yeah, and the so essentially um, what often happens in a Herbert poem is the poem, what dictates the ending of a poem, not always, but often, what dictates the ending of a poem is Herbert giving up. <coughs> and it's the moment that he gives up that he, that his will um, surrenders, but who does it surrender to? Um, to helplessness and therefore to God. If you think of well, you, um, if you think of the poem of the pulley, which you will recall we talked about on Monday, um, the the end of that is we're given everything by God: youth and beauty and strength and judgment. Not youth; that's that's from Keats, but strength, beauty, judgment, wisdom. Um, the only thing we're not given, there's only one blessing left that God doesn't give us, which is rest. Um, and so we have everything, and yet what's important is we're, told, is we're told, or God says, let him keep the rest, but keep them in repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, 
that at length if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. So the idea is that it's when you're weary that God will come to you. And when you strongly pray to God, when you say, here I am, God, I will do anything for you. I'm ready. I am yours, that God is not interested in you, not interested in your thinking that you can say, look how much I'm praying and look how much I mean it. Um, it's when you can't mean it anymore for Herbert. Now, th look, I think this is really important because it's what makes Herbert a great poet. Um, whether you like this theologically or not, and there's plenty not to like about, about it theologically if you're so inclined, um, because it's, it's sort of humiliating for human beings. It's one of those cases. I mean, I, I actually think it's really great. Um, if I were a believer, I would um, like thinking in this way. But even if, you, even if you don't like thinking in this way, even if you think that it infantilizes human beings and... Um, makes us um, uh, figures who need to be broken in order to have love. Um, it's nevertheless psychologically um, a way you could say of becoming self-aware. That is to say that when we're most self-aware, at least in a literary way, at least in a lyric way, at least in the kind of way that poetry brings us to self-awareness, um, when we're most self-aware is when all our defenses have been breached. All the ways that we represent ourselves to ourselves or imagine that we represent ourselves to the world, when those no longer seem to make sense, um, that's when we become most fully aware of ourselves as who we always were, let's say. Um, aware of ourselves as the child within us, um, the child we still are. Um, the child will always be. Um, and becoming aware of that is no longer turning away from what you are, but being what you are. So in Herbert, the Herbert is a priest who's therefore a figure of authority, nevertheless is writing poem after poem in which that authority doesn't matter to him, and in which moments of authority in him um, become broken, and he then becomes religiously contrite, but psychologically contrite. And psychological contrition, that is not contrite to someone, which is what religious contrition is, God, I have sinned, help me, but simply psychological contrition, which is I'm not the important person that I want to go around thinking that I am. Um, that's, that's a moment of um, real psychological importance for people. Um, it's what psychoanalysis aims for, um, is a moment when you become aware, is, is becoming aware of who you really are. Um, but whatever you think about that as a therapeutic um, uh, procedure, um, it's certainly something that a certain kind of poem does really, really, really well. Um, there's a great line in James Merrill, um, who also really liked Herbert. Um, called the ring cycle, um, where he goes to see the first ring cycle done at the Met. This was, what, 20 years ago? when they I think it was about 20 years ago that they um, first did the whole ring cycle at the Met. Um, but he remembers going to matinee as a child um, 
and then when he got older, how much he liked Wagner and um, the kind of contempt he had for Verdi as he grew up. Um, and then he, what he's now realizing is, um, compared to Verdi, whose mysteries I could whistle but could not plumb, Wagner was significance itself. Um, so that's the great opposition in operas, Verdi versus Wagner. Um, Wagner just hated Verdi. Um, and the, you know, what Wagner is doing is saying, you know, I'm the Plato of opera. Um, what I'm doing is, is making this is the greatest art form that ever existed, and I am, I am going as far as you can go along every parameter that has ever existed in opera in the story that I'm telling, in the poetry that it's written in, and in the music that it's told in, um, and in the spectacle that I'm giving, all those parameters, um, I'm doing it in the greatest way it can be done. I'm a combination of Plato and Shakespeare, although I don't think he liked Shakespeare, um, but I'm a combination of Plato and, and the greatest medieval legends and um, the greatest painters and uh, the greatest story, and Homer, um, except modest. better. Well, he was, modesty was not the highest uh, um, on the list of his virtues. Okay. Modesty wasn't in the first place for Wagner. Um, nor was human decency. Um, and then there's Verdi, um, who just wrote the most beautiful, sort of heartbreakingly simple music there was. Um, and what Merrill was saying is, you know, I got to be a, um, uh, an arrogant adolescent, and I thought I'd outgrown Verdi, and now I was ready for Wagner. Um, and he's in no way against Wagner. He loves Wagner. Um, but there's something really um, wonderful about this idea that, yeah, you can whistle Verdi. You can whistle his mysteries. You just can't plumb them. You can't get to the bottom of them. Whereas Wagner, not so easy to whistle, although some people do. Um, not so pleasant to whistle. Um, really, really mysterious, except not as mysterious as Verdi. Not um, those are mysteries that you probably could get to the bottom of. Um, you probably do get to a point in Wagner where you would think, "Okay, I get exactly how this is structured and exactly what he's doing," and it's really amazing. But with Verdi, you'll never get it. That's Merrill's point. Um, how Verdi could exist, he doesn't know. Um, so I think that's what happens in Herbert. There's that turn into a simplicity which is so much deeper than the adult complexity that has covered it over and that seems deeper at first. Um, look at the poem called The Flower, which is the next one here. Um, just trying to think if I should, uh, if we should look at Denial first. Um, Steve, do you remember Denial from English 11? Um. It's okay, I just, uh, have, do people know this poem? Denial? Okay. Well, uh, let's look at it first because it's another example of what happens at the, when, at the point of giving up, the poem um, um, doesn't. Um, so this is actually a really good poem for someone to read aloud. You've already done it. Um, yes, Nick. Wait, are you Nick or Nikki? Okay, because there's a Nick in my other class. I'm never sure who's who. Okay. When my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken, as was my verse. 
My breast was full of fears and disorder. My bent thoughts, like a brittle bow, did fly asunder. Each took his way. Some would to pleasures go, some to wars and thunder of the line. As good go anywhere, they say, as to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day. Come, come, my God, oh come, but no hearing. Oh, that thou should, shouldst give dust a tongue to cry to thee, and then not hear it crying. All day long, my heart was in thy knee, but no hearing. Therefore, my soul lay out of sight, untuned, unstrung. My feeble spirit, unable to look right, like a nipped blossom hung, discontented. O oh, cheer, and tune my heartless breast. Defer no time, that so thy favors granting my request, they in my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. Thank you. That was um, really, really nicely read. Um, so, what's the rhyme scheme? Don't look at the first stanza because you won't be, it won't be quite clear to you that Pearson verse rhyme. Um, that's a slight change in pronunciation. But look at the second or third or fourth or whatever. Or be aware that Pearson verse rhyme and look at the first. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, remember that we want to call unrhymed lines X. That's not what you're taught in when you first learn, and it's not it's not essential. But in this poem, it is essential um, because X really means here's an unrhymed line, where C would mean look for the look for the other C. Um, so A B A B X is the rhyme scheme. When my devotion could not just just think of it as kind of uh, said a little bit broadly. When my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken as was my verse. My breast was full of fears and disorder. What do you think of the meter of and disorder? Yeah. It certainly reinforces the idea that this verse is broken. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those last lines, and disorder, of alarms, but no hearing, but no hearing, discontented. Um, you may not be able to analyze why they're metrically off, but they're metrically off. There's a kind of, um, you, can, you can pick up the rhythm or meter of the four lines. When my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken, maybe. As was my verse, my breast was full of fears and disorder. The word broken and the word disorder do what they say. Broken kind of breaks the meter, and disorder certainly is a disorder in the rhyme scheme and in the meter. My bent thoughts like a brittle bow did fly asunder. Each took his way, some went to pleasures go, some to the wars and thunder of alarms. So it's like a motor that isn't turning over, or that's turning over but not starting. Um, he's trying to get it to catch, but it's not. As good go anywhere, they say, as to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day, come, come, my God, oh, come, but no hearing. Oh, that thou shouldst give dust a tongue to cry to thee and then not hear it crying. All day long, 
My heart was in my knee, but no hearing. So now he's just repeating himself, but no hearing twice. Therefore, my soul lay out of sight, untuned, unstrung. And that would be a good description of the poem. Therefore, my soul lay out of sight, untuned, unstrung. My feeble spirit, unable to look right like a nipped blossom, hung, hangs at the end of the line, discontented. Hangs from the end of the stanza, that word, discontented. Oh, cheer and tune my heartless breast. Defer no time, that is, don't wait at all. It's like what he said to Hope. Oh, cheer and tune my heartless breast, my breast which is untuned, unstrung. Now cheer it and tune it. Defer no time that so, thy favors granting my request, they and my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. So what happens? <laughs> yes, X becomes B, exactly. It rhymes. So the poem ends... Does it give up? At least the prayer is over at the moment when it's granted. Um, it's not, he doesn't say, oh, that rhymed, good, I'm going to stop. It's that he wants it so much that his last breath, the last breath of that prayer, is its rhyming. He wants it and he gets it at the very end. Like with the word loiterer, it's as though Hope finally gets him to say, ah, loiterer. If you ask, what is hope, why, why isn't hope coming yet? The answer is because hope wants him to say, ah, loiterer, rather than, okay, well, what about this vial of tears that I have for you? What hope wants is something that comes right from the heart. And it's as though when he finally speaks right from the heart, the poem ends because he's got nothing more to say but he needs nothing more to say when he speaks right from the heart. Again, theologically, that's really interesting and makes sense. But psychologically, poetically, bracketing the theology, and that's a perfectly fine thing to do because, in a sense, what he's saying is the theology, um, the poetry proves that the theology is right. So all you have to do is know the poetry, and then you'll understand the theology, but take the poetry as poetry. So just poetically, the poem gets somewhere, barely but completely, gets to a place of insight and passion. So let's look at that poem a little bit more closely. Um, what's the first, that is still denial we're looking at, what's the title mean? Is it referring to a river in Egypt? No, denial is not a river in Egypt. If I ever go to Cafe Press and figure out how to actually make it work, I want a bumper sticker that says, Denial is a poem by George Herbert. <laughs> um, yeah? Um, is it the meaning of denial that needs to be kept from something, but you're not giving someone something? Right. You're, yeah, yeah. You're being denied. So um, is there another possible meaning? The meaning that you're correcting us from thinking? It's... Um, when something's obviously there, but you're pretending like it's not. Like, I don't know how to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's what Peter does? Yes. Three times? Yes. Um, what does Peter do three times? For I know, he says he doesn't. He lies, basically. He yeah. says he doesn't know Jesus. And right. Lies. He denies him three times before the cock crows. Um, so it's, a, it's not an innocent word. 
That is, it's not something like um, um, deafness or, or refusal to respond, um, you know, unresponsiveness. Um, denial is what God is doing to him. You know, your appeal is denied. Um, your, your, your request is denied. Um, your prayer is denied. Clearly, it's what God is doing to him. But there's a suggestion that it's because that's what he's doing to God. That is, that as with hope, as with, um, um, as in the collar, the very things, the very proof that he's giving to God or to hope or to whoever, look what I've done for you, is a way of denying that God is God and he should trust him entirely. Um, human willfulness is a kind of denial of our own um, vulnerability and littleness. That's to put it psychologically. Of our own need for God is to put it theologically. Um, so the title means both. It's God is denying, to quote King Lear, denying to speak with him. Um, but also um, his insistence that God should be responding to the extent that you feel that insistence, and it's there, um, is a denial of what God really is. So, when my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, what's the first interesting word in those two lines? Okay, pierce, why? It's very forceful. Yeah, um, it's forceful. It's, um, you know, pierce your deafness, um, make you hear what I'm saying. I'm trying really hard to get across to you. Um, it's sharp. Nails pierced, to take a not innocent analogy. Um, what's the second unexpected word? Silent. silent. What does it mean to have silent ears? It's a little anachronistic. You don't, you don't think ears aren't the part of your body that responds, and therefore ears are not the part of your body that can be silent? Yeah, so you don't mean anachronistic, I just want to tell you because I'm an English oh, teacher. Sorry. You mean um, it's a misuse of the word or it's, it's um, either metaphorical or, if you want the, the $10 word for it, catacrestic. Mm. I just meant like jargon. Like yeah. you wouldn't think <laughs> to use the two next to each other. Yeah. Because it's not something that you would ever actually use to describe an ear. Yeah. Look at that, silent ear. Um, catacresis is C-A-T-A-C-H-R-E-S-I-S. And um, what it basically means is using, there, it has two meanings. One is to use a metaphor wrong, to misuse a word um, in a way that it's um, connected to what you're saying but is just wrong. Another is when there's no literal meaning and you can only talk about something metaphorically. Um, the f most famous example being the leg of a table. So that's a metaphor. Tables don't have legs. Animals have legs. Um, but if you talk about the leg of a table, you're using a metaphor, but there's no literal um, meaning. There's no literal word that you're putting a metaphorical substitution in. So that's also called a catechesis. That's the literal word for it. Tables have legs. No, animals have legs. Okay. Tables have pointy downy bits. Yeah. But there's no word for pointy downy bit. We only say leg, which is yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on your theory of language, but... Um, um, but people who are noticing um, and categorizing language in different ways notice that there are a set of things, like an ear of corn 
um, there's sets of things that we only have metaphorical language for. And the, they're dead metaphors, you could say. They're metaphors that we treat as literal. Um, but technically, we only have metaphorical language for the leg of a table, for, for um, an ear of corn, for, um, I don't know, the wing of an airplane, maybe. Um, so, um, silent ears. But we all knew what that meant. No one was puzzled by that the first time through, right? Did anyone pause at all? Did you? Did you think silent ears? That's kind of weird, but I'm going to keep reading. Did you as you were reading it? Um, because it's obvious what it means. Um, it's partly obvious because that transfer of adjectives, there's actually a rhetorical name for that also, where an adjective goes with the wrong noun, but we don't notice it. Um, uh, that's fairly common. Um, that's not an uncommon um, thing to happen in uh, language. Yeah. It just it, it evokes feelings of um, selective deafness. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, the ears are silent because he's choosing not to listen, not because he's deaf. Right. Um, exactly. Um, we also talk, by the way, actually I think this is a catechesis, but you'll see this. No, I don't think we'll read this poem by Milton's. But um, Samson, in Milton's poem, Samson Agonistes, is blind. Um, as you know, um, blinded by the Philistines after he's captured. Um, and he complains about it, complains just as Milton, um, this, this complaint must have something to do with Milton's own feeling about his own blindness. But Samson says, um, the sun to me is dark and silent as the moon hid in her vacant interlunar cave. Um, pretty amazing set of lines. But so even the sun, he can't see. Um, it's as silent as the moon hid in her in, in her um, in her vacant interlunar cave. That is the moon during during the new moon, the night of the the night between the la the, the the one night that you don't see the moon um, at all. Um, and um, that word "silent" there is actually in astronomy a technical word for um, the moon when it's um, essentially on the same side of the sun as the sun. When the moon is silent, that's a night that you don't see the moon. Um, but it's a visual word in astronomy. Um, it's a visual word, but it's um, a catachresis because it's coming from a sense of sound. We're not aware of the moon, and now we're using it, um, talking about its, its non-appearance as its silence. Um, but the word is going to matter to this poem because when is God not silent then? When does his ear stop being silent? Where in the poem does his ear stop being silent? When do things work out? Yeah. So what the last stanza is saying is, if you were to hear me, I would be able to rhyme. If you were to hear me, I would be able to express myself. I need your help to express myself is one way of paraphrasing this. I want to pray to you, but you're not hearing my prayer, and therefore I'm unable to pray to you. It's a little bit like Claudius in Hamlet. If you remember, Claudius tries to pray. And then he says, my words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thought, thoughts never to heaven go. So part of a sense 
that you can get all through Herbert, certainly in all the poems we've looked at, is that if you can pray well, it's because God is hearing your prayer and therefore the very fact that he's hearing it, he's answering it in your capacity to express it right, to say how you really feel. So what we have to do is do the work of trying to say how we really feel. That's the work of poetry. And if we really do that work, God will hear what we have to say. And if God hears what, he has, what we have to say, he will join with us in doing the work of trying to say it. So you're looking puzzled, but the first thing to notice is that's what the muse does. In other words, we haven't talked about this, and this isn't particularly the class to talk about it, except when we do Milton. But we're going to do Milton soon, so let's talk about it. Um, epic poems begin with an invocation of the muse, right? Everybody knows that? Um, as Byron parodies it in his great, 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 a thousand times great work, Don Juan, pronounced correctly, Don Juan. Um, he begins Canto Three of Don Juan, Hail Muse, etc. Um, but the, it's a parody of the way epic works begin, which is um, Sing, Anger, Sing, Goddess. First three words of. You're my class at, yeah, the Iliad. Menein Ayeda Thea, anger, sing, goddess. Um, so the third word of the Iliad is goddess. Um, the first line of the Odyssey is sing to me of the man of many wiles, that is Odysseus. Um, the Aeneid begins, I sing of arms and the man, that's what he's going to sing about. But then he says, tell me, O muse, what happens? Um, Homer, to go back to the Iliad, says to the muse, um, tell me everyone who is there, um, because I worship you, O muse, and would never go against you, against you the way Thamorus did, so that you destroyed him and destroyed his memory and left him unable to write poetry. So that the standard invocation is the invocation of the muse. You'll see it in Paradise Lost. Um, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man um, redeem us and restore the heavenly um, um, seat. Sing, he says, um, muse that on the sacred top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how God created heaven and earth. Um, now, how heaven and earth rose out of chaos. But it's always sing muse. Um, even Wordsworth, at the beginning of the prelude, refers to the muse. Oh, there is a blessing in this gentle breeze. Because the muse breathes into you. That's what inspiration is. You're inspired by a muse. So what the technical form of an epic poem is. We don't think of it this way for more than a few lines, but nevertheless, this is its technical structure is like a little kid asking for a bedtime story and telling the entire story that she wants to be told to her. So 
Tell me the story about how Peter Rabbit was walking down the street, down the street, and suddenly he came to a large stone and he couldn't pick it up, and he just didn't know what to do until. And if you do the whole story that way, you know, usually what will happen is that the adult will pick it up, but um, sometimes adults will just wait for the kid to tell the whole story. Um, that's how epic poems work. O Muse, tell me the story of the anger of Achilles and what he did and what happened to him and, and Briseis and Chryseis and um, Homer, the entire Iliad is Homer telling, asking the muse to tell him the story that his asking her to tell is the actual telling of. And Herbert is taking God as the muse here. And the idea would be that he's praying to God for an answer. But the answer is the inspiration of the prayer. And he will keep asking until he gets an answer or until he gives up. And God will be silent. Because being silent is the way he gets Herbert to go the right way. And to say what he says. So that's how God inspires him, by helping him, by not simply saying, oh, you want that story? Good, I'll tell it to you. But by helping him by not responding. So the difference between responding and not responding no longer is a clear-cut one. So here, we know that God's ears are no longer silent when the poem succeeds in rhyming. It's as though, now I've said it right. And when I've said it right, it rhymes. And now I know I've said it right. It's as though God has answered his prayer by forming the prayer, by well-forming the prayer, by making the prayer well-formed. So when my devotions could not pierce, I just want to look at this a little bit more because this is, again, this poem is another aspect of the work of, of Herbert's technical genius. Um, what we talked about so far is fairly straightforward, um, but that is to say it's not technically subtle. Um, it's something that once you see it, you see it. But Herbert does this so incredibly well. So, when my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears, then was my heart broken, as was my verse, heart and verse both broken. My breast was full of fears and disorder. My bent thoughts like a brittle bow did fly asunder. Each took his way, some would to pleasures go, some to the war and thunder of alarms. So he's, his bent thoughts are the thoughts that he has when he's bent to God on his knees, bent in devotion, bent in humility. But it's like a bow that's brittle and that just snaps and all the pieces go flying asunder. So he's trying to pray, but his mind is elsewhere. He's thinking about pleasures. He's thinking about exciting battles. He's thinking about all sorts of things. What he's not thinking about is God. So he's not really trying. He's trying to try, but he's not. And so his thoughts are flying all over the place. And they're recalcitrant. They're refractory. They refuse. They say, 
As good go anywhere, they say, as to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day, come, come, my God, oh, come, but no hearing. Now notice that here he's quoting his thoughts. Um, I think, by the way, you should cross out the quotation mark after no hearing and put it after come. And not only that, if we're going to do modernized quotation marks, you should put a single quote before the first come and then a single quote after the exclamation point because the thoughts are saying something. What they say is, as good go anywhere is to benumb both knees and heart and crying night and day, and then they quote what it's pointless to say, namely, come, come, my God, oh, come. So notice there are three levels of discourse here. Does everyone see that? There's Herbert saying how he, fe how he feels. Then he quotes his thoughts. And they say what they think, wait, which is. Wait, wait. I, can you break it down, please? So okay, so Herbert says, my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears. I, I was in a, in a um, um, full of despair because I just couldn't pray and I couldn't reach you. Um, my thoughts went in all sorts of different directions. Here's what they said. Or here's what they say as I try to pray to you. My thoughts are saying this in my head. I just can't, can't stop them from saying this sort of stuff, which is a way of saying that his, thoughts are, uh, that his thoughts are on all sorts of different things. But now they're describing why they're on all sorts of different things. So that's yet another different thing he's thinking about. So what do his thoughts say? They say, as good go anywhere is to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day. Right? What's that mean? As good go anywhere? Yeah. May as well go. May as well think about anything as to pointlessly be on 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 your knees night and day praying to God when you get praying to God for no reason. So the three levels are what he's thinking, what his thoughts are saying, and what was the third one? What they're saying, it's pointless to say, namely, "Come, come, my God, oh come." Which is his thoughts quoting him. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's what I needed. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so it's his thoughts are a little bit like the way he is in hope. His thoughts are saying, stop, with the, stop, stop interacting with that loiterer. Um, he's never going to come. So notice then that what happens here is that if you just quote his thoughts, that is, not quoting what he's saying and not using his words at all, just his thoughts words, what you get is, as good go anywhere, as to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day, and then possibly they also say, but no hearing. So his thoughts say, let's, give, let's say the quotation marks are right. Um, what do his thoughts say? They say, forgetting what it is that they quote, just their own words spoken in their own voice is, as good go anywhere as to benumb both knees and heart in crying night and day, but no hearing. So we're only looking at the thoughts, what they say, that part of the mosaic. This stanza is a mosaic, and it's made up of different speakers, words coming from different speakers. They say comes from Herbert. Come, come, my God, oh, come. They also come from Herbert, That's as, as Leah says. Um, the part that comes only from the thoughts are as good go anywhere, spin on both knees and heart and crying night and day, but no hearing. 
Um, Gabby, what were you going to say? No, because before you mentioned that we should move the quotations, but I was going to ask if we actually had to. No, you don't. Um, so it's ambiguous. It made, sense, like, to, made sense that that would be part of what they were saying. Okay, yeah. And I, I don't really understand how it would be the other way. Like, um, he's saying, but, like, is he saying that but God still doesn't hear regardless of what his thoughts are? I think, so. I think that's the other possibility. But, but it's fine with me if you don't move them. Um, the, the, the thing that speaks for moving them is the echo in the, in the next stanza, which also ends but no hearing. On the other hand, that might be a, a movement around quotation marks, and that might be the point. It's not, it's not a big deal either way, I don't think, but it's worth asking the question. I think the answer doesn't matter that much, but asking the question matters. So what makes the first four lines of that stanza follow the AB, AB rhyme scheme? Well, it's what he says, not what the thoughts say, but his saying that they say that, because they say will then rhyme with and day. And what the prayer itself is, come, come, my God, oh, come, which is not the thoughts praying, but just quoting the prayer as they do brings in a rhyme. So what we're seeing in that stanza is the beginning of a kind of suggestion that if you pray right, it will rhyme. Because even when the thoughts quote his prayer, they don't mean to be rhyming. They have what they ha they're saying what they have to say, which isn't poetry at all. As good go anywhere as to be on both knees and heart and crying night and day, but no hearing. Crying what night and day? Come, come, my God, oh, come, which rhymed with their word, benum. And both knees and heart and crying night and day, which rhymed with what they're doing, which is saying. So they don't mean to be rhyming, but the poem that presents them is rhyming them. And that's the start of a rhyme that isn't intended by the words that are being spoken, but that are set by some kind of poetic intelligence into the poem so that they do rhyme. And that's a kind of allegory, but a very subtle one, of how God grants prayer. Already, we're starting to get that. Oh, that thou shouldst give dust a tongue to cry to thee, and then not hear it crying. All day long my heart was in my knee, but no hearing. If you now say, well, at least we may not have rhyme, but we're getting repetition, but no hearing, but no hearing. That's another thing the poem is now suggesting is an advance. If you do cry night and day, come, come, my God, oh, come. If you do start getting repetition and don't give up, maybe you're on the way to something. Therefore, my soul lay out of sight, untuned, unstrung. Notice the repetitions there, un, 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 on the page. It's un, 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 un in that line. U-N, T-U-N, U-N, S-T-R, U-N. My feeble spirit unable to look right like a nipped blossom hung discontented. Oh, cheer and tune my heartless breast. Defer no time that so thy favors granting my request. They in my mind may chime and mend my rhyme. Notice that it's not only a rhyme, but but no hearing, but no hearing has prepared us really subtly for mind, may, chime, mend, 
my rhyme. That is mind goes to mend, may goes to my, and then we get the rhyme of chime and rhyme. It's almost as though we're getting a repetition and a rhyme in the last line. Just the slightest tinkering from mind to mend. That's called a consonantial rhyme. And from may to my. Rhymes and consonants. Some poems, especially 20th century poems, will um, keep the consonants the same and change the vowels, like mind and mend. Um, James Merrill will rhyme words like full and fail, um, and the vowels will change. Whereas in standard rhymes, the, for the opening consonants change, night and bright, but the vowel stays the same. That is the I. Um, so the poem ends with prayer granted. Remember uh, redemption. We'll start with redemption, but you should uh, keep reading. Um, just follow the syllabus. Uh, Crash on Loveless, and I forget who the third one for next. I think it's Vaughn for next week. Um, but we'll do a little bit more Herbert. We'll start. So bring these sheets back in too, because I want us to look at the poem called The Flower. Okay. Have a good weekend.